Today's show is the third episode of a multi-part series on the Eastern Front in the Second World War. If you happen to miss the earlier episodes, you might want to check them out before experiencing this one. If you don't mind picking a story up in the middle or you heard the earlier programs, well then, welcome to Ghosts of the Ostfront, Part 3. December 7th, 1941. It's history. A date which will live... It's hardcore history. I remember asking one of my teachers back in college what the biggest impediment was to understanding the past. And he had a great answer, and it was one of those obvious things that I wish I'd thought of myself. But he said, the biggest impediment to understanding the past is that we know their future. It's an obvious point, isn't it? After all, we know how everything turns out. We know that decision A is going to lead to consequence B. We have an almost godlike view from above at the events that they live through and have a perspective that they couldn't have had at the time. It's a little like how our descendants are going to view our decisions today. No doubt four or five generations from now, they're going to look at the things the people of the early 21st century did and say, how could those people have been so stupid? Couldn't they have seen how that was going to lead to this? Dummies. The future is always this cloudy, murky, unseeable, unknowable thing, isn't it? And sometimes we have to cut the people of the past some slack because they didn't see what we consider to be obvious. And this always comes back to me when I'm looking at the situation on the, you know, Eastern Front, what the Germans called the Eastern Front, the Ost Front in the Second World War after the German initial attack on the Soviet Union came to a halt. Remember, the German plans for Barbarossa had been to surprise the Russians. I always think of it like a boxing match, and the German is the smaller, muscular, more precision-oriented fighter, and the Russian is this giant, hulking, you know, fighter, six foot seven or whatever, and the German's plan is to attack the Russian when he's still sitting on the stool before the bell even rings at the start of the fight runs across, starts pounding the Russian into the canvas before the Russian knows what's even going on. The bell hasn't even rung. But by the end of the first round, with the German having knocked the Russian down many times, the Russian gets up and knocks the German down and bloodies him, and the bell rings and they go off to their corners again to have their little bit of rest and rehabilitation before round two begins. That's where we are after the Germans get pushed back in front of Moscow. And you often sit there with your... 100% 100% hindsight and say, all right, why did the Germans keep doing what they were doing? I always wonder if the Germans had had a less ideologically driven leadership because, you know, Adolf Hitler's national socialist worldview completely colored his ability to see things the way someone without that sort of ideology might see them. I've always wondered if you had the leadership that the Germans had in the First World War, at the end of the First World War when you had real military men running the country, if they wouldn't have looked at the situation and said, well, look, the plan failed. Plan was to beat up that Russian fighter before the bell, have him, you know, done and defeated before the end of the round. And, well, it's the end of the round and he's not done. Imagine what a less ideological leader could have pushed for at this point in the war had they wanted to. Adolf Hitler was in possession of huge amounts of Soviet territory. Think of what a bargaining chip that would be if you wanted to enter into negotiations. 
If you wanted to say to Joseph Stalin, look, I just declared war against the United States. I'm already at war with Great Britain. And let's remember, ladies and gentlemen, Great Britain was more than just England. Had all her dominions, right? You had Canada and South Africa, Australia and New Zealand, what's now Pakistan and India and a bunch of other places. All their resources, all their manpower. This was a big enough fight all by itself, wasn't it? And the decision to declare war against the United States was the ultimate in folly. Adolf Hitler's in real trouble at this point. It would have really been in his interest to figure out a way to end the war in the East, wouldn't it? And here he had so much to bargain with, you would have thought he would have gone to Stalin and said, let's end it here. Now, whether or not Stalin would have gone for that's another matter entirely. But the fact that Hitler didn't pursue that, you know, obvious choice to me, with hindsight being what it is, looks ridiculous. But the Germans, at least Adolf Hitler and the close generals around him, thought that they had weakened the Russians so much in that first round of that boxing match that they could go out and hit him a couple good times in the second round, and he was so beaten up already that he would just fall. That was the plan for 1942, to go out there even though your ability to fight has been diminished and assume that the Russians' ability to fight has been diminished that much more. The Germans would never have a fighting force the equal of the one that they took into Russia in 1941. That fighting force was a shell of its former self now. The loss of all those veteran troops, of those non-commissioned officers, of that experience, of the numbers, you know, you name it. The Germans couldn't replace that. They would take people now out of their factories and put them into uniform. They would try to make some of their units, you know, built back up to full strength because they couldn't afford to make all of them back up to full strength. Their assumption was that the Russians were nearly beaten and almost spent and that they could use their superior technology and tactics and leadership to overcome, you know, what little was left in the Soviet Union. Again, with hindsight, this looks a little ridiculous to me. Because remember, the Germans didn't have the same advantages against the Russians that they had against, say, the Poles or the French. The Germans could take all the territory of France and then the fighting is over. It doesn't matter how much the French want to resist. Once the Germans are in possession of all of the territory of France, war's over, right? How are they ever going to do that in the Soviet Union? The Soviet Union stretches all the way into Asia, all the way to the Pacific Ocean. You're never going to take it all, which means you have to defeat their will to resist. And Stalin had pretty convincingly showed that he had everyone cowed to the point where it was unlikely they were ever going to give up. After all, anyone who had a mind in 1941 towards giving up had a bullet in the back of the neck by this point. And if the German high command didn't see that they were involved in a terrible conflict that maybe was unwinnable, a lot of the soldiers on the ground fighting for the Germans in Russia had already had enough. One of the troubling signs that the Germans saw at the end of uh, 1941 was graffiti that some of the rank-and-file German soldiers had scribbled on the walls of their generals' buildings. The generals would wake up to these messages from their soldiers. Some of the messages said, We want to return to Germany. Or, We've had enough of this. One general reported seeing one that said, We are dirty, and we have lice, and we want to go home. And another general's office had the slogan, we didn't want this war, scrawled upon it. So you can see that the people at the front, maybe, have had enough of this fighting already. 
Lucky for the German army, more and more raw recruits from Germany were being poured into the front who hadn't quite lost their morale to the stage yet, hadn't run into the meat grinder of the war in the East yet. And it wasn't just the rank and file that were having doubts like this. Some of the major generals around Adolf Hitler were expressing their doubts too. And anyone who expressed doubts to Adolf Hitler at this point in the war, he just sacked perfect example is one of the most brilliant of the German generals, Heinz Guderian, the great tank commander. He said what he really felt, and for that, Hitler banished him, sacked him, did this with a number of other generals. And as the conflict raged on, you know, as more and more of these generals would come to the conclusion that the war was lost or that something needed to be done differently, Hitler would just sack them. And what this meant was he was taking over more and more control of the individual decisions from the professionals the same way that Stalin was doing in the East. Stalin started the war, running every little teeny detail, and as the war went on, learned his lessons and would let the military men handle more and more. Hitler was moving in the opposite direction. As the war went on, and more and more of these generals said, look, this is wrong, and we're going to lose, and this is bad, you're gone. Hitler looked at that as a failure of the National Socialist will. But what this meant was that the German army on the ground was losing more and more veterans. The German army at the high command structure was losing more and more of their competent, really professional leaders and being replaced with people who were simply yes-men to an amateur commander like Adolf Hitler. Author Richard Overy wrote, and it's a great line, he said that by the end of 1941, both armies had, quote, two amateur commanders in charge of the largest forces ever mobilized for war, end quote gives you an idea of the scope of this conflict and how overwhelming it would be for the talents of two men who had never commanded troops in battle at all. Now, in early 1942, both sides are sort of hunkered down. There's still fighting going on at low levels all the time, but the winter that was so deadly at the end of 1941 is still going on with just unbelievable and ridiculous temperatures. I mean, minus 30 degrees Fahrenheit, not uncommon. And after the winter, when you get to the spring, it's going to be another mud fest like you always have in the Soviet Union in the spring and the fall or that period of mud where operations just come to a halt. The Germans are already planning for their spring offensive. As soon as the ground hardens, they're going to launch a second attack into the Soviet Union, an attempt to finish what they had thought they had started in 1941. This attack was going to concentrate exactly where the Soviets didn't think it was going to concentrate, and that's in the south. In 1941, the Soviets thought the Germans would attack in the south. Instead, they drove toward Moscow, where the Russians weren't expecting it. In 1942, the Russians are expecting the attack to come at Moscow. The Germans go in the south. The plan is to first move into the Ukraine, what's now called Ukraine, the breadbasket of the Soviet Union in those days, and push towards the oil-producing regions of the Soviet Union, the Caucasus region and the mountains in the south. Now, the reason for this is something that any modern person would understand. The Germans needed oil. This was the first war where oil played a huge part in the thinking. And Hitler was not normally a guy who thought like this, but the oil was foremost on his mind because Germany didn't have a lot of oil. They had access to their allies' oil in Romania. There were oil fields in places like Ploesti, Romania. But this was really close to the Soviet Union and was not enough oil for the needs of this massive German war machine. So their plan was to take the oil that the Russians were able to produce. One of the few countries in Europe, by the way, that had oil in the ground. This would have, you know, a double effect. One, it would add to the German supply of oil. Two, it would take away from the Russian supply of oil. 
So the plan in 1942, what would become known as Operation Blue, was to go after the Caucasus, take that region from the Soviet Union. So that's the plan. Meanwhile, the Soviets are strengthening all the defenses around Moscow, moving more of their forces around Moscow, expecting the Germans to take another shot at the capital. And even while the preparations for the future offensives are underway, places that are still under German control are continuing to suffer immensely. Places behind the lines or places surrounded by the German armies. For example, up to 5,000 people a day are dying in Leningrad. Leningrad becomes one of the tragedies of the war, this major urban center that's under siege. And people inside it are starving to death, literally starving to death. There's a diary that just breaks your heart from a little girl who watched her whole family starve to death in Leningrad. And she writes in it, you know, as each one dies, she writes in the diary a little notation about them. Her name was Tanya Savicheva. And she wrote, quote, Mummy, 13th May, at 7.30 morning, 1942. The Savichevs are dead, all dead. Only Tanya remains She had listed the death of her mother, her brothers, her grandmother, her two uncles, all dead from starvation. Cannibalism became more and more widely reported in the city. They couldn't bury the dead because no one had enough calories in their diet to have enough energy to dig in the frozen ground. And Stalin was rather heartless about this whole thing because there were reports of the Germans using citizens of Leningrad who were outside the city as human shields. They'd hide behind them to pick up their dead or their wounded. And Stalin told the defenders of Leningrad to just shoot them. Anybody who's allowing themselves to be used as a human shield, just shoot them. It was really rough up in Leningrad, and some of the survival stories from that area are heartbreaking. This is the sort of stuff that's still going on while the Germans and the Russians reconfigure their setup for the big battles that they perceive to you know, be on the horizon for 1942. And not just that, the partisan activity is going on all the time behind the lines. You know, and the tragedy continues for the average people in these regions. On January 6th, 1942, in Moscow, the Russian foreign minister made a public denouncement of the German atrocities in the occupied territories. He says in Kiev alone, you know, one Soviet city, 52,000 people had been massacred in the months that the Germans had controlled it. And he said, quote, the Soviet Union will never forget or forgive. The atrocities, of course, were on both sides. One of the things that marked this conflict in the East was the horrificness. The fact that things happened on the Eastern Front all the time that you just can't imagine happening on the Western Front. One German reports during the retreat running from a snowbound road all of a sudden hitting this large sheet of ice, which he wrote was unusual. When you have thousands of boots tramping on, you know, something, you don't usually have these sheets of ice. And he said he looked down into the sheet of ice and saw German soldiers with open eyes and blue skin looking back up at him. What the Russians had done was they needed the road uh, made in an area where there was no road. So they had German prisoners lie down shoulder to shoulder and they hosed them down with water in the sub-zero temperatures and froze them into a human road. Can you imagine anybody on the Western Front doing this to anybody else on the Western Front? The British and Americans and Germans fought a much more gentlemanly type of war. This was a hateful conflict fought to the bitter end. And there were almost people that took pleasure in the atrocities. 
in the East. And the East had other elements that just were not present in the West. One of the elements was something that must have been a miscalculation on the part of the Nazi high command. You see, when the Germans tried to figure out what the Russians would be able to throw into this conflict, one of the things they surely studied was Russia's manpower potential. Before you go in to attack a country, you find out how many people they're likely to be able to raise to fight you. The Germans must have miscalculated here because if they only included men, they were leaving out a huge part of the Russian population, right? The women. They left them out for the most obvious of reasons. No one thinks about women as combat troops. Nobody but the Soviet Union. Now, there are armies in the modern world that like to boast about having women in their armies. The Israelis do this. Our own forces here in the United States have women in our armed forces. But none of us here now use women the way the Soviet Union were willing to use them. Communist ideology had always preached an equality of the sexes, but an equality of the sexes that defied what most of us would consider an okay thing to do. The Soviets not only used women to make up for the manpower that had to go to the front to fight the Germans. You know, all the major countries were doing that. Here in the United States, we sent the women into the workforce, just like they did in a bunch of other allied and Axis countries, to make up for the loss in the male workers, right? Soviets did this too. But the Soviets took their women and threw them in the trenches as well, something that the German planners were shocked by and the German soldiers found astonishing. The Soviet women were given guns and grenades. They flew planes. They drove tanks. They were snipers. There's so many stories that are just unbelievable. But what it showed was that they were not only competent soldiers, they were devastatingly good soldiers at times. A German soldier writes of a, a unit he called the Bandit Battalion that they ran into and fought. This battalion was led by a red-headed female Russian officer. And the German NCO who fought them called them, quote, merciless, saying they fought like wildcats and saying, quote, the fighting methods of these female beasts showed themselves in treacherous and dangerous ways. They lie concealed in heaps of straw and shoot us in the back as we pass by. There was a unit who fought in a battalion that the battalion nicknamed the Sniper Girls. And this was a bunch of women, not you know, some Russian female soldiers looked a little like female professional wrestlers. These sniper girls were like pinup girls, 18, 19, 20 years old, very pretty. And the battalion saw them coming and thought, oh, hey, some girls in the unit. Well, the first thing the commander said was that these women were the untouchables, he called them. And he said, if any of you touch one of these women, you're going to be off to a punishment battalion, a penal company. So they were the untouchables. But they earned the respect of this male unit who started calling them the sniper girls when they could see what they could do. And, of course, a sniper is a person who's armed with a very accurate rifle, with a telescopic lens, and their job is to hide and stay hidden sometimes for days on end waiting for the proper opportunity for a shot, and then they pick off the other side when the other side's not ready. Women proved to be deadly at this role, earning the respect of their male counterparts and earning the respect and admiration and fear of their enemies. The Germans didn't like facing women in combat, and they faced a lot of them on the Russian front. There was another unit that the Germans wrote about that they called the Nachthexen, the Night Witches. And this was a unit of bomber pilots, all women, 
and they flew the old-style World War I two-winged biplanes. And these planes were very quiet anyway, and the tactic that the night witches used was to come over the German trenches at night and then fly way up high before they cut their engines, turned them off, and let the plane glide noiselessly down over the German trenches and release the bombs when they got real low. And this would freak the Germans out because they wouldn't hear anything coming and then all of a sudden the bombs are dropping. And these were the Nachthexen. And not just that, the Nachthexen often flew without parachutes because there was a shortage of parachutes in the Soviet Union at this time. And guess who got the short end of the stick when it came to running out of parachutes? For the most part, the night witches flew without parachutes. One German officer wrote, quote, It is completely wrong to describe Russian women as soldiers in skirts. The Russian woman has long been fully prepared for combat duties and fill any post which a woman might be capable. Russian soldiers treat such women with great wariness. Gee, you think? If you just saw a woman kill 10, 20, or 30 of your enemy with a rifle, you might treat them with great wariness too. German Eastern Front veteran Gunter Korsherak wrote that the women fighters were known as gunwomen. And he says that they were even more fanatical than the men. There are stories of Soviet female medics, for example, fighting German soldiers with guns and grenades until killed to the last nurse. It's interesting to think of that little old lady walking down the you know, street in Moscow and wondering what might be in her memory banks. She could be a little homemaker, baking and cooking for her children, or she could have been a deadly killer in her youth. Someone who drove tanks, or dive-bombed, or killed with a sniper rifle. Not exactly what you normally think of with little old ladies. Now, there was also the less deadly roles that women were forced to play as part of the defense of their country. For example, there were brothels in the Soviet Union. Brothels that were mobile. Brothels that were there for the troops. Brothels whose prostitutes were considered to be doing their job for the war effort. Imagine being a prostitute for the fulfillment of the lusts of the soldiers as part of your duty to the country. I mean, once again, that's a little something that you might have a hard time telling your grandchildren about when they said, what did you do in the war, Grandma? Women also took the traditional male roles in the cities. They were the anti-aircraft gunners. They were the policemen. They were the fire brigade. These, there are stories of these buildings being bombed, and these women would run into the rubble and pick up wounded people and throw them over their shoulders just like a male fireman would and carting them off to the hospital. One tends to think of women not even being strong enough for this role, but we would be mistaken because they did it all the time. The Soviets preached equality between the sexes, and they practiced what they preached. And one gets the feeling that the German war planners before the war in the East broke out probably overlooked this possibility. But if you assume that the women are going to be used in combat, you have to assume, what, 30 or 40 percent more possible combat troops than, you know, if you just assume that the men were going to fight. One wonders if the Germans would have launched an attack on the Soviet Union at all, already outnumbered, if they realized they were going to be outnumbered by that much more. It's also interesting to note that the Germans never in the whole war, even at the end under desperate situations and circumstances, ever put their women into combat. They were putting 13-year-old boys into combat and their women weren't fighting. So it shows you a difference in the mentality between the two sides. 
and gives you a clue as to how shocked the German soldiery must have felt fighting women. They were never comfortable doing it. Now, as 1942 starts to get into the spring, you start to see some Soviet attempts to win back territory. And they're all bloody and relatively pointless. There was a lot of fighting on the Eastern Front that goes unnoticed by most people in the West that was on such a large scale that it kind of boggles the mind that we don't know more about it. For example, people in the West always can talk about, you know, if you know anything about the Second World War, things like the Battle of the Bulge, also known as the Second Ardennes, in 1944, the last great German offensive in the West. And we will recount this battle over and over and over again like it was some huge thing, and it was big. But there were almost as many people fighting at the Second Battle of Kharkov, also called the Barvenkovo Mousetrap, as there were at the Battle of the Bulge. And no one in the West even mentions the Barvenkovo Mousetrap in 1942. There were tons of battles like this on the Eastern Front, where lots and lots of soldiers were involved and died, and yet these just get sucked up into the greater morass that was the fighting in the East. So many people dying, so many people on both sides, that only the absolute largest of battles get even mentioned in the West. There were a million men at the Barvenkovo Mousetrap in 1942, and by the end of the battle, things were relatively unchanged. Maybe this is why they don't get more notice. They're not decisive battles. It's just another one of those bloody encounters. There were bloody encounters at Rzev in 1942, even in January when the Red Army achieved a breakthrough there. Lots of this fighting is going on as 1942 begins to move into the spring, that period where the mud is everywhere and no one can move. The Germans, however, are getting their plans ready for Operation Blue, the move into the Caucasus and the Russian oil fields. Now, while this is all going on, the partisans are very active, though, behind the lines. The partisan warfare is a little understood side of the conflict. Most people realize that there were anti-German forces working behind the lines to cause sabotage and to pick off Germans that were foraging and to generally make trouble for the occupying forces. But what a lot of people don't realize is how many different partisan groups and factions there were and how difficult it made life for the citizens who lived in these regions who were already just having a struggle trying to survive. For example, the Soviet Union was offering aid and sending officers and troops to supplement you know, Russian-Soviet partisans behind the lines. This is what everybody commonly thinks of. There were definitely pro-Soviet partisans operating against the Germans. But there were also partisan groups that wanted to have these areas freed from anyone's control. Nationalist groups. Take Ukraine as an example. There were partisan groups operating in Ukraine who wanted to free Ukraine from the Germans so that the Soviets could come back. There were partisan groups in Ukraine who wanted a free Ukraine who were fighting not only the Germans that were occupying it, but also the partisan forces that were, you know, pro-Soviet. One writer has called the partisan wars behind the lines as basically internal civil wars. But what it meant for the people who lived there was you had many different factions you could get in trouble with because basically every one of these groups would kill you if you didn't help them and if you helped someone else. The Germans would kill you if you were a partisan at all. The Russians would kill you if you were a partisan who wasn't a Russian partisan. You know, if you were one of these Ukrainian national partisans, they'd kill you. If you were a German supporter or someone who wasn't helping your own group of partisans, they'd kill you. And the nationalist partisans would kill anyone who weren't helping them. 
If you were just a citizen trying to get by, it was a very tough life. And of course, a lot of these groups would kill you for helping the other side. A lot of these groups would kill you for not helping them. The catch-22s that the citizens faced was amazing. Just look, for example, at the no-win situation that the Soviets often put their citizens in. If a Soviet citizen was in a region that was about to fall to the Germans, they could be shot if they didn't vacate that area and flee toward the Soviet lines. You could be accused of wanting to live under a German regime. Yet at the same time, those people were under orders that everyone had a duty to fight the invaders, to stay and to join partisan groups and the like. So if you did end up fleeing, you could also be shot for not staying and fighting to protect the motherland. That's the kind of thing that the poor citizens in these occupied territories were having to deal with, just trying to survive with all these different factions fighting each other and demanding your allegiance. Well, let's just say a lot of people picked the wrong choice, and there may not have been a right choice. Listen to what the partisans did. One of them wrote in his diary about what his day consisted of. He said, quote, Today we shot a traitor. In the evening, I went to do the same thing to his wife. We're sorry that she leaves three children behind, but war is war. End quote. Of course, whether this person was a traitor is hard to figure out, because who were they a traitor to? The nationalist partisans? The pro-Soviet partisans? Did they help the Germans because the Germans said if they didn't help them, the Germans would hang them? Very tough for the citizens in these regions to make the right choice, because there was no right choice. Now, a quick look at Hitler's plans for 1942 reveals exactly how ambitious they are. The Caucasus, where the oil-producing regions of the Soviet Union are, are very far away from Germany. They're almost in the Middle East. As a matter of fact, Hitler has this grand design. One of his fantasies has always been to imagine German armored units actually moving down into the Middle East from the north. And then he imagines that the German armored units that are fighting in North Africa under General Rommel against the British, that they're going to move through Egypt and up into the Holy Land, and that these two sides are actually going to link up somewhere in a place like Iraq. You're going to have the giant, most giant, pincer movement of all time. This is a fantasy, of course. Hitler never paid enough attention to the logistics that would be required for doing something like that. But you can only imagine that that must have been an Allied planner's worst nightmare. Just a quick look at the distances involved gives you an idea of how ambitious the 1942 blueprint was. I mean, the distance to the Caucasus was about 1,600 miles from Germany. 1,600 miles is like landing in the city of Los Angeles and conquering all the way past Dallas, Texas. It's like trying to invade Australia and landing in Melbourne and making it all the way to Cairns in the north. Look at how long those supply lines are. And the Russians are fighting right next to their supply lines. The 1942 offensive is a huge plan and a huge gamble. Nevertheless, on June 28, 1942... Operation Blue is launched, and it is instantly an amazing success. It reminds all the soldiers who remembered the 1941 campaign of the early months of 1941. The ground is hard, the fields are dry, and the Russians seem to be running away in droves. Part of the problem, of course, is that the Soviets imagined that the attack was going to come near Moscow. All their forces in the south where the Germans do attack are inferior quality, smaller numbers. And to be honest, the Russians are just panicking, too. The German army is no longer powerful up and down their front like they were in 1941. 
Instead, what they do is they pick and choose the best units from the front and they concentrate them into a kind of a battering ram. They don't have the ability to reinforce and restock all those depleted units from 1941. So what they do is they restock and resupport all the units that they want to use in this big offensive. The 6th Army, led by General Paulus, is the core of this. But there are a bunch of panzer units, panzer divisions, panzer armies even attached to this. And this unit goes screaming through the Ukraine, beating every Soviet army in its way, taking cities like Rostov and Kharkov and eventually Sevastopol. The Russian morale is so bad and so many units are running away that Joseph Stalin issues an infamous order at the end of July. It's called Order Number 227, and the nickname is Not One Step Back. And what this order is, is an order that says that any Soviet troops moving backwards in an unauthorized fashion, in other words, when not ordered to, are to be killed. And it begins the practice of setting up what are called blocking units. So when a unit goes into combat, there are troops put behind them with machine guns. And they're told to mow down any Soviet troops who move you know, toward their own lines. This not one step back order is an order that says you are to be killed if you don't attack the enemy. Boris Gorbachevsky, who's fighting on the Soviet side, said that the phrase... Don't fear the other side, fear our own, was commonplace around this time. Imagine fighting to defend your country and your job is to shoot your countrymen if they move backwards, even under the most vicious of German attacks. That's not all that's done to prevent desertions. It becomes a pretty common practice for the Soviets to mine, lay mines, right in front of their own trenches. So that if people started jumping out of the trenches and running to the other side, they'd get blown up on their own mines. The Soviets would train their own artillery in front of their trenches so that if whole units decided to desert, they could fire their own artillery at them. Soviet officers whose troops under their command desert are punished themselves and often sent to concentration camps or even killed. Even suicides are reported among Soviet officers who wake up in the morning to find out that they've had troops desert in the middle of the night while on guard duty because the ramifications for you are so terrible if your commanders find out that troops under your command left. And there are interesting stories about the Germans realizing that this dynamic is going on and doing everything they can to make it easier for the Soviets to desert. For example, there are stories about German soldiers being told to shoot at the soldiers on the other side that are shooting at their own people. So, in other words, train your guns on the Soviet soldier trying to shoot his comrade who's trying to desert. There are other stories about German tanks being driven out in between the two battle lines to provide cover to hide the Russians that are running over to the German lines from their own people. You know, so that when the bullets start being fired, the Russian deserters have a place to hide. And the Germans had a whole way of handling this. When the Soviets arrived in the German trenches, the Germans would feed them, give them some warm clothes, and then put them in front of a microphone so that they could instantly broadcast back to the trench they just left and call a comrade by name and say something like, Ivan, you should see how well they've fed me. You should see how great these trenches look. Just come on over. They'll treat you great. This is the sort of stuff that was happening more and more in the war at this point, and that's why Stalin issued Order Number 227 and made the penalties so draconian. By the end of the war, the numbers of Soviet soldiers shot or sent to prison or sent to penal battalions for desertion will be in the many hundreds of thousands. 
Not just that. A penal battalion was one of these places that was just a nightmare to have to go to. These are the places where the cannon fodder was. These are the people who, if you needed to have a mine cleared really quickly, you would send those people to just run through it. And the penal battalion was where you got sent if you committed some crime that wasn't worth shooting you for. And that's where you went. And you were supposed to serve three months in a penal battalion and then be let out, but most people didn't survive three months. Also, if you got badly wounded, you were sent back to your unit. It was called atonement through blood. But the penal battalions were used for all of the worst sort of jobs. If you had to just charge German machine gun positions, you'd have a penal battalion do it. They proved to be very important in the war, though, and there were a lot of stories about brave, fanatical-type attacks by these penal battalions that turned the tide in a bunch of battles in the war. This willingness to punish anyone, though, on the Soviet side for the littlest infractions or for not carrying out orders to the letter began to inhibit the ability of commanders to make decisions on the ground. Everyone was so frightened of being shot or put in a penal battalion that they followed orders even when the orders made no sense at all. One of my favorite stories highlighting the Soviet chain of command and how scared everyone was of disobeying orders and how it was better to lose lots of men than to disobey orders comes from a commander who was ordered to have his troops cross a river. Listen to this. Quote, The regimental commander has maps and orders from above, and you have nothing but a rifle and an entrenching tool. Somewhere up above, a general looks at a map, and it seems reasonable to him to change the front line. He sends down an order. At such and such a point, move five kilometers forward. As luck would have it, there turns out to be a river just at that point. The white sturgeon, it's deep and swift in open terrain. It would be convenient and relatively safe to sit in some trenches behind this natural obstacle. But an order is an order, and you can't say, it's impossible to cross here. Though from any normal man's point of view, it is indeed impossible to cross, because there are no boats, no planks, no trees, and the soldiers all come from the steps and not only can't swim, but have never even seen a river. And so it starts. Comrade Lieutenant, sir, I can't go into the water. I don't know how to swim. But you won't be moved to pity. It's better to drown a soldier than to show irresoluteness or insubordination, all the more so since you've already reported to the battalion commander that there are no boats. You pull out your service revolver, cock it, and yell, Get into the river at once, you son of a bitch. I'll count to three, or else you'll never go anywhere. The soldier goes in the water. The current seizes him. He drowns, as do all the rest that are forced in. Then you report to the battalion commander, Comrade Major, there are only five men left in my company. The Major, of course, is furious. What did you do to them? I didn't hear a single shot. You reply, they all drowned crossing the river, Comrade Major. What do you mean drowned? I'll shoot you right there like a dog, the Major replies. As you will, Comrade Major, but I did report to you that there were no planks or logs to be found in the area, that the river is deep and swift, it can't be forded. You told me to stop arguing and obey orders. You blockhead! What a stupid way to destroy a whole company! The Major also feels at fault and calls the Colonel, his regimental commander. I gave you five hours to cross the river, the latter shouts without listening to the Major. Have you carried out the order? No, Comrade Colonel, we've sustained heavy losses, the Major says. Losses? Well, that's fine. There weren't any losses our heads would roll. What happened? Everything's quiet. Not a single shot. Did they all get knifed or what? No, drowned, the Major replies. The company that was to cross over were all slant eyes. Never saw a river before. Naturally, they drowned since there was nothing to float on. The Colonel is incensed. You son of a bitch, why didn't you take some pontoons? We've been dragging a whole transport of pontoons around. I can give you as many as you want. 
The Major replies, I no longer need them, Comrade Colonel. There are five cucumbers left in the first company, ten in the second, maybe twenty in the third. There's no one left to cross. Cucumbers, by the way, was a slang term for the green-clad Soviet infantrymen. You'll have to cross anyway, the colonel says after some pondering. What counts is the fact that the order has been carried out, even if only one man makes it. End quote. Now that's ridiculous, but that shows you that the whole chain of command was traumatized by the leadership of the Soviet Union, and everyone was afraid for their own hide, and making statements like, well, this can't be done, was not acceptable. There was a story about a whole unit of brand new recruits who didn't even have rifles being sent up against the 16th Panzer Division, which is suicide, and of course getting wiped out. And when the Germans captured the officer who ordered the attack, he said he knew it was suicide, but the commander who told him to do it was dead drunk and insisted that it be carried out. One wonders how many lives were uselessly lost on the Eastern Front because of this command structure that punished any sort of what was perceived as insubordination so ruthlessly that people just carried out orders that were stupid and deadly. And even the Soviet high commanders had every reason to be scared. There were a bunch of them who at the early part of Operation Barbarossa had been languishing in the NKVD secret police prisons. One of the most distinguished generals of the war, Konstantin Rokossovsky, had a whole mouthful, for example, of steel teeth. It was his most distinguishing characteristic, people would write when they first met him, of his famous steel smile, they called it. But he wasn't the only one. There were generals like Beristov, who had a whole mouthful of gold. And the reason for their metal teeth was because before the war, they and a number of other Soviet generals were victims of Stalin's purges against the military. And the secret police had knocked out all their teeth, broke their ribs, shattered their toes with hammers, pulled out their fingernails, and subjected them all to multiple mock executions. And then to still go and fight on for that regime, to prop it up and keep it going, and not just fight well, but fight loyally, that's kind of hard to understand, isn't it? But it was pretty common on the Soviet side of things. But it did give all these generals a healthy respect for what Stalin could do to them if they got on his bad side again. Now, as Operation Blue goes forward, the Germans are once again feeling like victories within their grasp. They're marching across these steppes, which are like the American prairies. There's no trees. There's no water. The villages are even sometimes hundreds of miles apart. And, of course, the Soviets, when they retreat, are retreating the same way that the Scythians back in ancient Greek times, you know, when they were fighting the Greeks or the Persians did in this same area. They're poisoning the wells. They're burning down the villages. They're cutting down and taking away all the food. But the Germans seem happy. They do remark that once again, though, the extreme weather conditions in Russia are taking their toll. In late 1941, it was the horrible Russian winter. In summer 1942, it's the equally hard-to-handle Russian summers, which can reach, according to German soldiers who fought there, up to 125 degrees Fahrenheit in this treeless open area. The German soldiers say that it was as hot as Africa. And some of these German soldiers had fought in Africa, so they ought to know. Imagine marching 10, 12 hours a day and fighting in 125 degrees. I imagine there are some veterans of places like Iraq who can tell you what that's like. Now, as the summer wears on 
and the Germans keep pushing deeper and deeper into the Soviet Union, they begin to approach this area that's going to be the gateway to the Caucasus, this oil-producing region of Russia. There's a city on the Volga River, the Volga is the largest river in Europe, that they have to take in order to open the door, so to speak, to the Caucasus region. It's a giant city, stretching some 30 miles, if you count the suburbs, along the western bank of the Volga. It's a modern city, full of high-rises, and concrete, and stone, steel, and glass. It would look like most modern cities today. It's not perceived as particularly a tough place to take. Most people don't think that it's going to be a big deal to take this city and then keep moving toward the Caucasus. After all, the German armies are not meeting much resistance at this point. There are some German letters that point out how this looks like the end of the Soviet Union. One German writes back home, quote, The company commander says the Russian troops are completely broken and cannot hold out any longer. To reach the Volga and take Stalingrad is not so difficult for us. The Fuhrer knows where the Russians' weak point is. Victory is not far away. That was written on July 29th. Another German wrote, quote, Our company is tearing ahead. Today I wrote to Elsa. We shall soon see each other. All of us feel that the end, victory, is near. That was written on August 7th. Now, in July, Hitler had actually turned to one of his generals and said, The Russian is beaten when he looked at the progress that Operation Blue was making. What a turnaround that was from merely six months before. In January 1942, it looks like the German might be beaten. In July 1942, Hitler is proclaiming that the Russians are done again. Meanwhile, the Russians have figured out that Stalingrad is going to be a major battle site. They start sending more units to the city. Stalin issues a decree saying that everyone in the city 16 years old to 55 years old needs to go out and start digging tank traps and trenches and laying minefields. That's more than 200,000 people. The city, though, has more than half a million people in it. Even school children are led out by their teachers to do some of this work and will become casualties doing it. And by early August, the German Wehrmacht is approaching this urban center, this gateway to the Caucasus and the oil fields. This major city named after the Soviet Union's leader, Stalingrad. It's called Volgograd now. It was called Tsaritsyn for many years before it was named Stalingrad. Now, the date that the actual battle of Stalingrad begins is a little hard to pin down. Some sources will say August 19th. Others will say August 23rd. Sort of depends on what you consider to be the general attack, and it sort of depends on what you consider to be the actual outskirts of the city as opposed to some of the suburbs. One thing's clear. By August 19th, some German units are in combat around Stalingrad, and by August 23rd, the main attack has begun. The main attack is led by General Paulus's 6th Army. The 6th Army was a renowned force that played a major role in the conquest of France in 1940. And symbolically enough, the first units to engage the German ground forces are anti-aircraft guns from the city manned by women. These women fight until every one of them is killed, and some of them fight for four days before they're wiped out. And this becomes almost a lesson to the Germans in how tough a battle this is going to be, a fight to the last person, a fight to the last drop of blood, a fight to the death. Stalin makes this clear by not allowing the civilian population of Stalingrad to leave. Because after all, 
Most civilians, when an enemy army is approaching, try to get out. Stalin forbids this, feeling like, one, such a panic might spread to his own troops, and two, his own troops might be more willing to fight hard if there were children and women and old people all around them. So he forbids the citizens from leaving. This will turn into a disaster on the night of August 23rd when the Luftwaffe bombs Stalingrad to soften it up for the German armies attacking it. It becomes one of the most ferocious bombing attacks ever on the Eastern Front. More than 1,200 German bombers, more than 4,000 sorties. The flames were so intense from this bombing that people 40 miles away at night said they could read their newspapers by the flame light. The oil tanks along the Volga exploded, pouring burning oil into the river. More than 40,000 Russian civilians died in the bombing in the first 48 hours. Now, Russian morale is shaky again at this point. The German forces seem powerful. The city seems doomed. There are stories of officers in the Russian army lining up their troops in single file, walking down the line of soldiers, counting, you know, one, two, three, and every time they reach the number 10, pointing their pistol at the face of the soldier who's number 10 and shooting them point blank in the face, and then starting the count again, and every 10th man shot in the face reincarnating the old, ancient Roman punishment of decimation to serve as an example to the morale of the ones who don't get shot. By the end of Stalingrad, the Soviets will have shot more than 14,000 of their own troops for such acts as cowardice, trying to surrender to the enemy, or, get this, for not shooting their comrades who are trying to surrender to the enemy. That's a capital crime. Your buddy jumps out of the trenches because he's scared and tries to run to the enemy. If you don't shoot him, they'll shoot you. The Germans attack and launch major offensives several times into the city center. September 7th, they launch one. September 13th, they launch another one. September 14th, there are counterattacks by the Russians. And the city has become a nightmarish place. The bombings which were intended to soften the city up for the German armies instead turn all of the city into a pile of ruins. Twisted metal, broken glass, concrete and stone everywhere. A paradise for defenders and a nightmare for people trying to root out all these people hiding in the rubble, turning every little barricade into a fortress of sorts. And all of this debris lying around magnifies the explosive effect of the shells and the grenades. You know, instead of just having to deal with the shrapnel, every one of these explosions lifts up all the broken glass and the pieces of metal and the little shards of concrete. The troops are fighting close to each other. The Russian general on the scene, a general named Chuikov, tells his troops to hug the German soldiers fighting them so closely that they won't be able to use their artillery or their aircraft because they'll risk hitting their own forces. This heavily urbanized environment in Stalingrad challenged the German generals like no other type of terrain. There's a reason that it's considered to be the toughest of environments and terrain to operate in, and that's because it tends to chew up men and material like no other. Even in ancient times, you can go read the Greek and Roman sources and the Chinese sources, and they'll talk about troops trying to deal with the narrow city streets and and that sort of environment, and it's tough even back then. 
Modern warfare made it that much more difficult. General Dorr, the German general fighting in Stalingrad, explained what it was like. He wrote, quote, The time for conducting large-scale operations was gone forever. From the wide expanses of Stepland, the war had moved into the jagged gullies of the Volga Hills, with their copses and ravines, into the factory area of Stalingrad, spread out over uneven, pitted, rugged country, covered with iron, concrete, and stone buildings. The mile as a measure of distance was replaced by the yard. The high command's map was the map of the city. For every house, workshop, water tower, railway embankment, wall, cellar, and every pile of ruins, a bitter battle was raged, without equal even in the First World War, with its vast expenditure of munitions. The distance between the enemy's army and ours was as small as it could possibly be. Despite the concentrated activity of aircraft and artillery, it was impossible to break out of the area of close fighting. The Russians surpassed the Germans in their use of terrain and in camouflage and were more experienced in barricade warfare for individual buildings. End quote. Dorr and a lot of other generals on the scene actually doing the fighting were aware of how much this environment favored the defender. Sometimes the commanders way back in Berlin at the high command didn't always realize this. And the battle raged back and forth inside the city, turning so many of the natural features and the buildings, the larger buildings, into monuments and famous sites of sorts. I mean, you can hear the accounts of fighting going on in places called the tennis racket by the troops, or the railway station, or the Red October factory, or the grain elevator. The grain elevator was a place where, and it became almost mythic in Red Army lore, some 40 Soviet Marines fought to the last man, holding off larger German amounts of troops for a long time, until they were ultimately wiped out. It became one of those, almost a Battle of Thermopylae famous last stands in Stalingrad that added to the heroic nature of the struggle from the Red Army side. And it's interesting because even though you have all these tales of morale problems and draconian measures to deal with them, like the man shooting every 10th guy in his unit, to make an example, you also start to get a feeling that Stalingrad is becoming this mythic place to the Soviet people. The Soviet soldiers weren't aware, and maybe even Stalin wasn't aware, that Stalingrad was going to be one of the most decisive battles in history, and certainly of the Second World War. But once it became apparent that it was the Red Army soldiers fighting there began to take an amazing amount of pride in the fact that they were there, that they had a chance to be in a place where eventually they could tell their grandchildren that they participated in such a historic event. And many of them talked about and pledged to fight to the last drop of blood in order to halt the fascist invader there on the Volga, the most Russian of Russian rivers. Now the battle rages back and forth all through September into October as well. The German troops' attitude is beginning to change. They had a haughty attitude at the very beginning of the campaign on the Volga. By the end of October, their whole demeanor had been altered. There's a German who wrote in his diaries, and you can see the change from the beginning of September to the end of October. He wrote for September 1st, quote, Are the Russians really going to fight on the very bank of the Volga? It's madness. On September 8th, he said simply, Insane stubbornness. On September 11th, he called them fanatics. On September 13th, wild beasts. On September 16th, barbarism. They're not men, but devils. On September 26th, barbarians. They use gangster methods. 
and then there's no entry for a whole month. And then on October 27th, he writes, quote, The Russians are not men, but some kind of cast-iron creatures. They never get tired, and they're not afraid of fire. And the next day, October 28th, 1942, he writes, Every soldier sees himself as a condemned man. You can see how in the space of, well, from the very beginning of September to the end of October, the whole attitude of the German soldiers fighting in Stalingrad changed. They went from people who thought that the war was almost over, pushed to the Volga, and finished the last Soviet resistance, to people who saw themselves as condemned men. And Hitler was of a similar sort of schizophrenia. Because on November 8th, he gives a speech to his old compatriots from the old days in the Nazi movement, basically saying that the situation in Stalingrad is almost over. There's just little tiny pockets of resistance, and it's almost in their hands, and that when it's in their hands, this will mean the turning point in the war, which is a very haughty thing to say, considering what the strategic situation in the war is on November 8th. I mean, by November 8th, the situation in North Africa with the British who were fighting the Africa Corps under General Rommel have changed the whole tide of that conflict. The battle, the second battle of El Alamein has taken place, pushing Rommel's forces back away from Egypt. Now remember, in Hitler's fantasies, this was going to be the big southern prong that was going to sweep up and join with the southern Russian German armored forces, creating this giant encirclement. Now that's being pushed back never to return from the area near Egypt. Anglo-American forces had also landed near Morocco in North Africa, part of Operation Torch. So now the Americans are finally getting into the fight. And the American equipment that's part of the Lend-Lease program, the famous program to bring, you know, guns and tanks and food and clothing to all of the United States' allies in the war, is finally starting to make its presence known in Stalingrad. The Soviets, for example, are eating a lot of American canned food, marching in some cases on American boots, driving American jeeps. And here's Hitler making speeches about, hey, you know, we've got them right where we want them. It's interesting that also on that same day, November 8th, when Hitler gives that speech, the foreign minister, Joachim von Ribbentrop, goes to Adolf Hitler and in retrospect does a very brave thing and suggests to him that maybe it's time to try to come up with a peace deal with Joseph Stalin. Hitler's answer to this was to reject it outright, saying, a moment of weakness is not the right time for dealing with an enemy. So you can see his sort of schizophrenia. He just goes and tells everybody that we have the Russians right where we want them, and then he brushes off his foreign minister's suggestion to call for peace by saying a moment of weakness is no place to begin to do this. So he realizes that he's in a moment of weakness now. And right after Hitler's big speech on November 8th, saying that the city's almost in their hands, and also telling his foreign minister that it's no time to negotiate with Stalin from a position of weakness, the weather in that part of the country finally breaks. The one thing that the German armies were trying to wrap up the fighting so quickly so they wouldn't have to deal with again comes to pass. The Russian winter returns on November 9th. Temperatures plummet to minus 18 degrees Celsius in some places, and every veteran fighting in Stalingrad who remembers the year before knows that this is just the beginning. Two days after the winter weather arrives in force, on November 11, 1942, the 6th Army launches a last-ditch effort to take Stalingrad. They organize their best units, they arrange a Luftwaffe airstrike to coincide with this offensive, and they push themselves against the Soviets and head toward the Volga. 
Their assumption is that the Soviets in front of them are even more worn out than they are, less well-equipped than they are. They manage to push toward the Volga all the way to the river on a front of 600 yards. But the Soviets are fighting back fanatically. One Russian platoon holds out until there's only four soldiers left in it and then calls down an artillery strike on its own position because it says that it's surrounded by Germans and their last words to their own artillery is, Farewell, comrades. We did not retreat. Another Soviet unit describes trying to fight the Germans off without enough equipment and supplies to do the job. At the end of their rope, he writes, quote, We beat off the next attack with stones, firing occasionally and throwing our last grenades. Suddenly from behind a blank wall from the rear came the grind of a tank's caterpillar tracks. We had no anti-tank grenades. All we had left was one anti-tank rifle with three rounds. I handed this rifle to an anti-tank man, Berdyshev, and sent him out through the back to fire at the tank point blank. But before he could get into position, he was captured by German Tommy gunners. What Berdyshev told the Germans, I don't know. But I can guess he led them up the garden path, because an hour later they started to attack at precisely the point where I had put my machine gun with its emergency belt of cartridges. This time, reckoning that we had run out of ammunition, they came impudently out of their shelter, standing up and shouting. They came down the street in a column. I put my last belt into the heavy machine gun at the semi-basement window and sent the whole of the 250 bullets into the yelling, dirty, gray Nazi mob. I was wounded in the hand, but did not let go of the machine gun. Heaps of bodies littered the ground. The Germans, still alive, ran for cover in panic. An hour later, they led our anti-tank rifleman onto a heap of ruins and shot him in front of our eyes for having shown them the way to my machine gun. There were no more attacks. An avalanche of shells fell on the building. The Germans stormed at us with every possible kind of weapon. We couldn't raise our heads. Again, we heard the ominous sound of tanks. From behind a neighboring block, stocky German tanks began to crawl out. This clearly was the end. The guardsmen said goodbye to one another. With a dagger, my orderly scratched on the brick wall. Rodimsev's guardsmen fought and died for their country here. End quote. That little story shows what sort of heroism was going on in the fight in the ruins all the time. The Germans capture one of the Red Army soldiers from that unit who lies to them and tells them that they're almost out of ammunition. Here's the way to get to the unit where it'll be undefended. And instead, he leads them into the only area where he knows a machine gun is waiting to mow the whole group down. Then the Germans execute him in front of his friends as retribution for the trap that he had set. And then finally, the Russian unit fights to the death, scratching their name into the wall so that anyone who eventually recovers this position will know that his unit fought to the last man and died heroically. The situation for the Germans is nightmarish. It is for the Russians as well, but when you get a feeling that you're getting the upper hand, it's maybe a little bit easier to bear what's going on. A German wrote... We have fought during 15 days for a single house with mortars, grenades, machine guns, and bayonets. Already by the third day, 54 German corpses are strewn in the cellars, on the landings, and in the staircases. The front is a corridor between burnt-out rooms. It's the thin ceiling between two floors. Help comes from neighboring houses by fire escapes and chimneys. There's a ceaseless struggle from noon to night. From story to story, faces black with sweat, we bombard each other with grenades in the middle of explosions, clouds of dust and smoke, heaps of mortar, floods of blood, fragments of furniture and human beings. Ask any soldier what half an hour of hand-to-hand struggle means in such a fight, and then imagine Stalingrad. 
80 days and 80 nights of hand-to-hand struggles. The street is no longer measured by meters, but by corpses. Stalingrad is no longer a town. By day, it is an enormous cloud of burning, blinding smoke. It is a vast furnace lit by the reflection of the flames. And when night arrives, one of those scorching, howling, bleeding nights, the dogs plunge into the Volga and swim desperately to gain the other bank. The nights of Stalingrad are a terror for them. Animals flee this hell. The hardest stones can't bear it for long. Only men endure. And it wasn't just the soldiers. The civilians of Stalingrad were also forced to endure. Stalin had issued an order not long after the battle began, lifting his earlier restriction on the civilians leaving. He was allowing them to get out of the city. But the problem was is that they had to cross the Volga just like everything else that was getting back to the Russian side of the river, and they had to compete with military hardware and transports and all sorts of other important things, which meant that the civilians left the city in little dribs and drabs, taking their lives into their hands when they did, by the way, because the Germans were bombing and strafing and launching all sorts of different attacks against the ferries crossing the river, and many of these boats exploded into slivers with civilians lining the deck. So it was quite an ordeal to cross. But the worst ordeal was to have to stay in the city. And even at the end of the battle, there would be Russian civilians living like animals, covered in rags, in holes in the sides of the hills that they had dug, trying to scrape up enough food to keep from starving to death. A German soldier wrote back to his family about the plight of the civilians. He wrote, quote, Today I saw many refugees coming from Stalingrad. A scene of indescribable misery. Children, women, old men as old as grandpa, lie here by the road, only lightly clothed and with no protection from the cold. Although they're our enemy, it was deeply shocking. For that reason, we can't thank our Fuhrer and the good Lord enough that our homeland has been spared such terrible wretchedness. I've already seen such misery during this war, but Russia surpasses everything. Above all, Stalingrad. You won't understand this. One has to have seen it. On November 19th, the tables are turned. This is when the Russians launch their winter offensive, Operation Uranus. They use forces that used to be around Moscow, preparing for the German attack that Stalin thought was coming there in spring 1942, the one that instead was launched into the south. Slowly but surely, Stalin moves these units from around Moscow, brings them down toward the Stalingrad area, builds up the forces, and then launches them in winter weather on the 19th of November, Not at Stalingrad, where the 6th Army's fight rages, but at the 6th Army's poorly defended flanks around Stalingrad. In some cases, a hundred miles away from Stalingrad, blowing away the Italian, Hungarian, and Romanian flank units that are guarding the supply lines feeding the 6th Army. These units were not equipped, trained, or motivated up to German standards. The Soviets knew this. The Germans even knew this. They simply didn't expect to get bogged down in Stalingrad. And it was a huge omission to not strengthen those flanks when they realized that the war for that city was going to take longer than they thought. The Russian tanks blow away the Romanians on the flanks who are completely unequipped to deal with tanks. Behind the tanks are huge numbers of Russian cavalry wielding sabers and charging out of the forest and the snow. It's like something out of the Napoleonic era. Four days after the Russians launch Operation Uranus, their forces meet in a pincer movement way behind Stalingrad, cutting off Paulus and the 6th Army and all the other German units fighting in the city. 
the worst thing that could possibly happen to the Germans in the East has happened. Their largest fighting force on the Russian front, some 350,000 men, are encircled by their enemy, who, to many, seemed on their last leg only four days previously. On November 27th, a relief force led by German Field Marshal Erich von Manstein is formed from Army Group Dawn. His job is going to be to punch a hole in this iron ring now surrounding Stalingrad and relieve the forces in there. See, the forces inside Stalingrad are cut off from any sort of ground support. But Hermann Goring, that boastful, inefficient head of the Luftwaffe and second in charge in the Third Reich, boasts to Hitler that they don't even need to have a corridor open for supplies, that his Luftwaffe will be able to supply the Sixth Army from the sky. It's a ridiculous boast. There aren't even enough planes in the Luftwaffe on their best day to bring all the supplies in that the Sixth Army needs. He fails miserably, and immediately the Sixth Army begins to feel the pinch of not having the food and the weapons that it needs, the reinforcements that it needs to conduct the battle. Nevertheless, knowing that von Manstein's relief force is being formed, knowing that Hermann Göring has promised to bring supplies into the city, a slogan begins to be circulated amongst the German troops trapped in Stalingrad. They start saying to one another, Hold on, the Fuhrer will get us out. Meanwhile, in an attempt to destroy what's left of the German morale, the Soviets put huge speakers all around the encircled pocket of German troops. The speakers blare out tango music because the Soviets consider this to be sinister sounding. And then every now and then there'll be a break in the tango music and the Soviets in German will tell the Germans just how trapped they are and how bad their situation is. And then back to the tango music. By December 3rd, the weather is now every bit as cold as it was the year before in 1941. Temperatures of minus 35 degrees are not uncommon in the Stalingrad pocket, a pocket that's no longer being fed or supplied. People living in holes and amongst the brick and stone of collapsed buildings. By December 12th, von Manstein launches this long-awaited counterattack. It's called Operation Winter Tempest. And the job is to punch through, open a corridor that will allow the 6th Army to get supplies again. By December 19th, Manstein's tanks are only 30 miles south of Stalingrad. At this point, von Manstein asks Paulus in the city to break out and sort of meet him halfway. If his forces try to break out while he's trying to break in, it'll be easier to meet. And this is where Hitler does one of his typical commander moves that many generals have been analyzing ever since the war. He forbids Paulus to break out. Now, this has been debated ever since. Most people assume that this is another stupid move by Adolf Hitler, that he was worried that if a retreat started from Stalingrad, that it would become a rout, that if they left the city, they would never take the city again, and you would see the beginnings of the loss of the German fortunes. Hitler was already upset about what was going on in North Africa and probably thought that he was not going to let the war continue to move backwards for Germany. Many generals have blamed him for this ever since. But there's a counter-argument that some have put forward that what Adolf Hitler felt was that even though these troops in Stalingrad were in big trouble, that they were keeping large numbers of Soviet troops tied down. And if those troops could be freed up to attack other areas of the front, that the Germans were in a position to collapse all up and down the line. So there's been arguments ever since this time about whether not allowing Paulus to leave Stalingrad was the right move or a terrible blunder. 
Goring, of course, is making light of the whole situation. The second in command, this head of the Luftwaffe, says that the situation in Stalingrad is, quote, not so bad. This prompts General Seitzler at the high command to reduce his own rations to what the troops in Stalingrad are living off of. In other words, cutting his caloric intake to whatever the soldiers on the front line are getting, he loses 26 pounds in two weeks. When Hitler finds out why his high command general is turning into a skeleton in front of his eyes, he orders him to return to a normal diet, but then thinking he's doing something magnanimous, he does ban champagne and brandy at the Fuhrer headquarters and says it's, quote, in honor of the heroes of Stalingrad, end quote. By December 23rd, 24th, the Operation Winter Tempest to break into the ring surrounding Stalingrad has failed. The attempt to save the 300, 350,000 soldiers of the 6th Army and related units is over. Now, heavy fighting does continue all around the perimeter. This area is still hot. There's still fighting going on. The troops inside the ring, it's called the Kessel, which means the cauldron, are not surrendering. The troops are starving, though. They eat their last 12,000 horses on Christmas Day, 1942. It's sort of their Christmas dinner. Eat the last of the meat, and then the real starvation begins. Suicides begin to be common inside the Kessel. Officers go to doctors inside and ask for poison to commit suicide at the right time. German soldiers are freezing to death in increasing numbers. And some of the Germans are shooting themselves to try to get sent home on the few relief flights that are still able to leave the cauldron from the few airfields left inside it untaken by the Russians. One German wrote, quote, I had taken out a case of medical supplies to the advanced dressing station. It was in a warehouse with the roof open to the sky in places due to the shell fire. It was absolutely crammed with wounded, and most of them were in a bad state, dead and dying together, crying and praying aloud. An orderly told me they were going to be flown out. Just then an artillery salvo fell into the street, and calls from some more wounded took him and the doctor outside. I went over to a part of the building where the men were quiet. They were so badly injured that they were unconscious, and some of them had already died. I turned one of them off his stretcher. I fired three shots through my left foot and lay down. I lost consciousness. It was dark and the pain was frightful. There were no lights in the warehouse, and I kept telling myself it will be over in an hour, a few hours, and then the flight out. Two days passed, and then the blood round my foot froze solid, but I dared not call for attention. Two of the men near me died. Then, the morning of joy, they started to move us. End quote. Unfortunately for that soldier, they also found the powder burns on his foot that showed that he had shot himself. That was a capital offense, and he could have been shot for that. Lucky for him, the chaos inside the cauldron was such that he was sort of left to his own devices. That's the sort of desperation, though, that was beginning to happen inside the pocket as the German ring was being tightened more and more. Now, the planes that were still able to get in and out were bringing a pittance of food and supplies in, nowhere near what the 6th Army and related units needed to survive. They were, however, able to fly some mail out, fly some wounded out, and some of the worst stories and most heartbreaking accounts come from people who were watching their wounded comrades be evacuated and then watching the planes as they reach the end of the runway and take off into the air be hit by anti-aircraft fire and come plunging down in flames, killing all the wounded that had just thought that they had gotten out of the cauldron. 
people from Stalingrad describe seeing the airfield, and then the first thing you notice is all the destroyed, burned hulks of planes at the end of the airfield and just past it where the anti-aircraft had done its job. There were also lots of dead Germans around the airfield because they were trying to rush the planes in a mad scramble to get out, and the military police guarding them had to shoot them sometimes. Those that did get out of the cauldron described an interesting conflict of emotions. First thing they describe is the immense guilt of surviving and leaving their comrades to their fate. But as the planes climbed over the clouds and they could look down and realize that they had escaped, they describe a feeling that they say was like being born again. And many to this day who survived that and got out on the last planes describe this feeling as life beginning again, a life that they had written off as being over. Some of the letters that made it out on these last flights are heart-wrenching. One said, quote, Dear parents, fate has decided against us. If you should receive the news that I've fallen for greater Germany, then bear it bravely. As a last bequest, I leave my wife and children to your love. A German soldier wrote to his wife, quote, I'm thinking of you and our little son. The only thing I have left is to think of you. I'm indifferent to everything else. Thinking of you breaks my heart. Another wrote on his daughter Susie's birthday, quote, who will soon have a father no more, like thousands of other children. The torment goes on and on and will only get worse by the hour. We're pushed into the narrowest area. We will, however, fight to the last round, as ordered, particularly since we're told that the Russians are killing all prisoners, which I doubt. People have no idea what's going on here. Not a single promise is kept. On January 8, 1943, General Rokozovsky, the commander-in-chief of the Don Front, issues a surrender ultimatum. He guarantees the Germans in the pocket their lives and safety, and after the end of the war, a return to Germany. Paulus rejects the demand for surrender. Hitler has told him not to surrender. January 10th, the Red Army begins something called Operation Ring, and after a 55-minute artillery bombardment by thousands of guns and rocket launchers, attacks Stalingrad's pocket with seven full armies. At this point, the leader of the 6th Army, General Paulus, is said to be fatalistic and depressed. When a subordinate tries to give him an appraisal of the military situation, he says, quote, Dead men are no longer interested in military history. On January 22nd, Adolf Hitler sends a signal to the Stalingrad defenders. Quote, Surrender out of the question. Troops fight on to the end. Imagine being locked in this pocket, hoping for nothing more than a chance to get out. And that's the message you get from your commander, the one who not that long ago you were saying, hold on, the Fuhrer will get us out. And now that's the death sentence you hear over the telegraph. Joachim Wieder was a German soldier trapped in the Stalingrad pocket. He wrote, quote, now faced with the imminently impending final catastrophe, the question about the sense of what was happening that had plagued me so often during the war seized me again with cruel force. Hundreds of thousands of flowering human lives were suddenly being senselessly snuffed out here in Stalingrad. What an immeasurable wealth of human happiness, human plans, hopes, talents, fertile possibilities for the future were thereby being destroyed forever. The criminal insanity of an irresponsible war management with its superstitious belief in technology and its utter lack of feeling for the life, value, and dignity of man had here prepared a hell on earth for us. Of what importance was the individual in his uniqueness and distinctiveness? He felt himself as if extinguished and used up as raw material in a demonic machine of destruction. Here war showed itself 
in its unmasked brutality. Stalingrad appeared to me as an unsurpassed violation and degeneration of the human essence. I felt myself to be locked into a gigantic, inhuman mechanism that was running with deadly precision to its own disillusion and destruction. End quote. I often think how amazing it is that it was one man's decision that these people, this immeasurable wealth of human happiness, plans and dreams and everything that Joachim Bieter talked about, it was all done by one man's will, Adolf Hitler. The dangers of a totalitarian state become obvious when you read a comment like that and you realize who was responsible for that man's predicament and all of his comrades. On January 23rd, the last German airfield in Stalingrad falls. The pocket is now completely cut off. By January 25th, the Red Army succeeds in splitting the defenders of Stalingrad into two separate forces. On January 30th, the wonderful Hermann Goring makes a radio broadcast likening the defenders of Stalingrad to the Spartans at Thermopylae. This death sentence is heard inside the cauldron, and soldiers who survived recall it sounding like they were hearing their own funeral oration. On January 31st, the exhausted troops of 6th Army out of ammunition now, surrender to the Red Army. The Russians capture Field Marshal Paulus, now a Field Marshal, and made a Field Marshal because Hitler had hoped that he would shoot himself because no German Field Marshal had ever surrendered. Sixteen other generals are also taken. Paulus is described by his captors as being, quote, in a state of physical and moral disintegration. He says, I have no intention of shooting myself for this Bohemian corporal, meaning Adolf Hitler. Many German officers do commit suicide instead of surrendering, though. Some by attacking the Russians in a way that they know will lead to their deaths. You know, shooting a pistol out of the trench and waiting for the Russians to shoot back. Many shoot themselves. One calls his son, who is also fighting at Stalingrad, to his headquarters so he can say goodbye, and then he kills himself, and so does the son. By February 2nd, all the remnants of the 6th Army have surrendered. Some sporadic fighting will continue all the way into March. But in all... More than 96,000 survivors of the more than 300,000 that were fighting in Stalingrad are captured. Out of that, barely 5,000 will live to return to Germany after the war. The Germans portray this whole sacrifice in an anti-Bolshevik light, saying that all these people died to save Europe from communism. Instead of this glorious new order that the Nazis were going to have, Lebensraum in the East, the propaganda, which had always sort of had this angle, now plays up the idea that Germany was suffering for all mankind, protecting everyone from the red hordes. Some people still buy this idea today. As the German survivors are being led into captivity, the NKVD secret police, the Russian secret police, are on the scene. And they're separating out any Russians that they find mixed in with the Germans, the helpers, they were known as Heewees, and begin shooting them right on the spot. A Russian officer yells at members of the German 297th Infantry Division. He points to the ruins of Stalingrad and he says to them, This is how Berlin is going to look. A rather prophetic statement. Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels keeps the fact that the Germans had been surrounded at Stalingrad from the German people as long as he can. When the Nazi leadership finally tells the population about the disaster, they turn it into a historic last stand. They actually have the gall to say that not a single German soldier survived or surrendered, that every single one of them died in the pocket. Now, this 
lie that the Nazis tried to tell their own people was quickly exposed because obviously the Russians were there with newsreel cameras and they had film footage. They also had little postcards that they gave to all the captives to write home with and tell their families they were okay. These notes exposed the less than historic situation that Goebbels was talking about when he gave the Germans the rundown of what happened in Stalingrad. So they prohibited the delivery of the postcards. The Germans would stop the postcards from coming into Germany and exposing the Nazi lies. The way the Russians got around this was they started dropping these postcards on the German trenches instead. And many German soldiers, risking severe punishment, would send anonymous letters to the people that those cards were addressed to, telling the families that their man was alive. And they would sign these forwarded notes something like a compatriot or XXX from one German soldier to the family of one of their comrades. No one can say with any certainty how many people died at Stalingrad and in the related fighting around the city. The casualty figures are hotly disputed even today. It's completely unknown, for example, how many civilians died in the fighting. Out of a pre-war population estimate of more than half a million, the Soviets were able to pull some 1,500 survivors out of holes in the ground, dressed in rags and looking more like ghosts or wraiths. All of them traumatized. The stories of the children will break your heart. They were in many cases no longer able to speak or wouldn't speak. They would not look adults in the face. Even after the fighting had ended, they would come out of their holes, scurry around from pile of bricks to pile of bricks, looking for little morsels of food, and then scurry right back into the holes, avoiding all human contact. As far as military casualties, most estimates put the Soviet dead between half a million and three-quarters of a million people. And that number swells to well over a million if you throw the wounded into the equation, too. Axis forces lost between 200,000 and 400,000 dead in the battle. Some Russian sources claiming that 250,000 corpses from the Axis side were actually counted on the field of battle, but that's unconfirmed. The figure of 96,000 prisoners taken by the Soviets is considered to be relatively reliable, though. The vast majority of Axis prisoners will never see their homeland again. And to put this in perspective, British losses for the entire war, Army, Navy, and Air Force, were less than 400,000 people. U.S. losses were just over 400,000. The Soviets and Germans lost more people in a battle than some of the other allies lost in the entire war. The disaster at Stalingrad had a huge effect. First of all, it ruined Adolf Hitler. He was never the same. He never spoke in front of cheering rallies again. He became introverted and withdrawn. His eyes bulged out. Shakes were noticeable on him. He took all his meals in private now. Generals who dealt with him described him as being a transformed person. Many of the German generals who had still supported Adolf Hitler at this time changed sides. Many of those who would be implicated in the attempt on Hitler's life the year after this changed their minds about the fortunes of the regime after Stalingrad. And the German soldiers themselves, especially the long-term veterans who had seen enough, started to realize that there was almost a karmic experience going on here. As Stalingrad survivor Joachim Wieder wrote, quote, In my soul arose again the whole abysmal disaster of the war itself. 
More clearly than ever before, I appreciated the full measure of misery and wretchedness of the other countries in Europe, to which German soldiers and German arms had brought boundless misfortune. Had not we, so far as the victors, been all too prone to close our eyes and our hearts, and to forget that always and everywhere the issues were living human beings, their possessions and their happiness? Probably only a few among us had entertained the thought that the suffering and dying being caused by our sorry profession of war would one day be inflicted upon us. We had carried our total war into one region of Europe after another, and thereby destructively interfered in the destinies of foreign nations. Far too little had we asked the reason why, the necessities and the justifications for what was happening, or reflected on the immeasurability of our political responsibilities that these entailed. Misery and death had been initiated by us, and now they were inexorably coming home to roost. End quote. The visual evidence that the chickens had come home to roost could be seen for miles upon miles around the Soviet battlefield. Bodies littered the landscape, both Axis and Allied. The few photos that were taken at the time show uniformed corpses as far as the eye can see, sometimes stacked several deep. Removal of these bodies would prove to be a monumental task for the people living in the area, a task that was never fully completed. Stalingrad was the event that created the famous Soviet bone fields in Russia, and even today, they are everywhere. A little digging is all it takes to uncover the remains of one of the great tragedies of the 20th century, a tragedy that almost certainly had to happen if Hitler's legions were to be turned back from the very heart of Russia, if Nazi Germany were going to be defeated. Nevertheless, for the people that had to live through it, it was one of the great nightmares in all military history. The chickens coming home to roost, indeed. If you think the show you just heard is worth a dollar, Dan and Ben would love to have it. Go to dancarlin.com for information on how to donate to the show. In the next edition of Ghosts of the Ostfront, the loss at Stalingrad didn't just cost the Germans a ton of troops. It also cost them the initiative on the Eastern Front, and they will never get it back. They will make one last mammoth attempt in 1943 to seize control of events in the East, only to be defeated once again. This will start the long, hard, bloody, slogging rearguard action that will last all the way through 1944 and into 1945, eventually taking the Russians into the capital city of Berlin itself. And this is where scores will be settled, revenge will be meted out, and the last bloody Wagnerian act of the thousand-year Reich, as Adolf Hitler called it, will play itself out. It is also where the foundations for the history of the latter part of the 20th century will be laid. All that and more in Ghosts of the Ostfront, Part 4. <laughs>